Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. What's up, Gypsy Gang? We're back for another episode of... Not of the Gypsy Tales podcast, actually. I guess it is, but it isn't. Uh, it is our belated 2021 book review. Uh, every book that I read reviewed by me uh, in 2021, and uh, it was a pretty solid year for reading. Kind of goes goes in waves. 2020 was a pretty big one. Um, 2021, quite a little bit, uh, quite a lot busier in, in life, but still managed to uh, to read some pretty epic shit. So uh, I share my thoughts on a bunch of really great books. This is one of the, I guess, my favorite podcasts to do every year, and it's one that I'll, I get a lot of messages about um, and sparks up a lot of conversation, and a lot of you guys actually read these books as well. So this is definitely one of the more rewarding podcasts that uh, we put out each year. Um, so yeah, pretty pretty stoked to uh, bring this one to you guys now. Today's podcast is brought to you by the legends at Manscaped. And gentlemen, Father's Day is just around the corner and our friends at Manscaped are here to ensure all the father figures out there are looking daddy material this June. Manscaped's Performance 4.0 package, which includes their signature lawnmower 4.0, is the perfect bundle to tackle any and all old man hair from head to toe. This right here is no dad joke. Treat him and yourself and join the 4 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped with this exclusive offer. You get 20% off plus free shipping with the code gypsygang at manscaped.com. Trust me, his dad bod, potentially your dad bod, will thank you. Uh, Look guys, this is pretty much Manscaped over the years. We've been with these guys for a while and we've just watched their products get better and better and better. They literally can look after you head from toe these days. Uh, I particularly found uh, all of their products pretty useful while traveling. I uh, just got back from the Euro trip and uh, and Manji took Manscaped with me the whole time. So make sure you jump onto manscaped.com. Use the code GYPSYGANG to get 20% off. I repeat, use the code GYPSYGANG to get 20% off plus free shipping with the code GYPSYGANG at manscaped.com. Shake what your daddy gave you. All right, we also have a new sponsor to let y'all know about. Um, Kind of a new sponsor, kind of an old sponsor. If you remember all of the Cricks uh, ads that we did at the end of every ad, I mentioned Kyle. Well, Kyle has just got himself 
a new dealership uh, and he is now with Tropical Auto Group in Rockhampton. So naturally, we went with Kyle, we went with our boy. Um, so we are now repping the crew at Tropical Auto Group in Rockhampton. They sell new uh, Ford, Isuzu, Mitsubishi and Kia. Um, and Kyle's got a really great plan to support the uh, motocross community here in Queensland. Uh, they've sponsored the... Qu- Queensland title race uh, in Rocky in July, uh, which is going to be a great one. If you are in the market for a new car, a used car, ring and ask for Kyle. Uh, mention Gypsy Tales, and he is going to give you a $500 voucher for MX Store uh, when you get a rig for yourself. So once again, Tropical Auto Group in Rocky. We've just got a brand new D-Max. The thing is pretty pimping. Um, little upgrade for me, to be honest. I'm pretty excited about it. Uh, and we're also going to work with one of our sponsors, CTO, Uh, and do a bit of a dope truck build as well um, this year. So more on all that coming soon, but thank you so much to Kyle and the team at Tropical Auto Group. We are also brought to you by the guys at Crush Oz. You can head to crushoz.com.au. You can peruse through their entire range of cleaning products for your mountain bike, for your car, for your dirt bike. Uh, I'm using the the bike bucket basically flat out um, for cleaning my bike. I do... However, have the big 20-liter drum um, of their premium bike wash as well. So if you want to get yourself in uh, the cleaning groove with the guys at Crush, just head to crush.com.au. We're also brought to you by the guys at Boost Mobile. You can head to boost.com.au. These guys, hands down, are the best prepaid uh, service provider in Australia. They're on the full uh, Telstra 4G network. Um, long-time supporters of this show. It is our go-to. Um, and there is, at this point, hundreds of Gypsy Gang members that made the switch from a plan over to Boost. And I still get messages all the time uh, about the guys saying how stoked they are on that change. So once again, boost.com.au. We are also brought to you by the guys at MX Store. And the MX Store guys are running their first annual Battle in the Bush weekend, full of riding held at the legendary Conondale. Uh, you can head to their Instagram uh, or head to mxor.com.au uh, for more information. But it is featuring not only a three-hour moto relay, uh, but the third and final round of the 125cc cup triple, cl- triple, clown? triple crown. Um, and it's also a 250 class, two-stroke only. Um, and then they're also doing a 250cc and overclass. Let the big dog eat. Uh, more information is at mxstore.com.au. And while you're there, order whatever you need to ride this weekend. Um, as it stands, I am recording this on a Wednesday. So don't know when you'll be listening to this, but let's say you do order on a Wednesday um, and you do that same day shipping that MX Store is known for. You're probably going to get your stuff before the weekend. So once again, mxstore.com.au. We're also brought to you by the guys at Fist Handwear. You can head to fisthandwear.com peep that new range that they've just dropped uh shout out to the uh those snow weather gloves that kept me warm at manji uh and also the guys at rival ink design co uh who have just dropped all of their winter apparel range um i had a new kit on the gas gas that i raced at manji shit was lit um those boys and girls never let us down thank you very much for listening to this episode i hope you enjoy and uh we'll see you on the next one Gypsy gang, 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 gang
All right, what's up, Gypsy Gang? We're back for the 2021 Book Review Podcast. One of my favorite podcasts of the year uh, to do every year, but it's also one of the hardest and most annoying in a way, I guess, because I want to do a good job. I don't really want to rush it, but it's a lot. I think it's like, I think, what was it this year? Where are we at? 25 books uh, this year. Um, So yeah, it's kind of a lot to go through. Um, There's some really good stuff in here. There's some not so good stuff in here. Um, so yeah, hopefully this inspires you to pick up one of these books, maybe. Um, one of the coolest things about the podcast is the messages that I get from, from just the everyday dude that hasn't read a book since he left school, um, and has got a bit of a reading habit. So, um, it's, yeah, it's definitely something that, I mean, I talk about a lot. It, it improves, it improves my life a lot. Um, and also when you talk for a living, I guess it just gives you kind of cool shit to talk about, cool different perspectives. Um, I think one of the biggest things with reading in terms of the re- reason why to read is because we're just kind of like locked in, in our own mind. We've got this one perspective um, on the world and that perspective is a mixture of our genes, our DNA, who our parents are, who our parents' parents are, and then the environment that you grew up in. Um both of those things you don't have any kind of control over. So realistically, the the majority of your worldview and the majority of the way that you um, you see things is based on these kind of two factors that are really out of your control. And I think that with reading, it's a very, very rare way that you can start to see the world from a completely different perspective. Um it's very, very hard as a man to think like a woman. But if you read a novel that's written by a woman, uh, you get a very, very f- like first-hand look at what it is like to, I guess, think in, in those terms. So I think it's the same. It's kind of the same with drugs, really. Like you sort of, it's like a chance that you get to have your perspective kind of shifted and start to think things from a, a different angle. So there's, uh, yeah, like I said, a bunch of great books on this list. I'm going to try and go through them. Uh, what I thought I would do first, though, I thought I would do, I guess, just like a little bit of a summary um, to give you guys an idea. Uh, I think a lot of times, uh, I actually have never done this before. I've never tallied up my page count and then divided it by 365. Um, a lot of people, including myself, actually, think I read like a lot. Um, but when you sort of break it down, so what did I say, like 25 books for the year? Yeah, 25 books for the year. Um, and it came out to be 6,570 pages um, for the year. When you divide that by 365, it's only 18 pages a day. Um, so extremely doable. Um, obviously, books vary in terms of how easy they are to read. Some books are definitely uh, a lot easier than others to read. Um, so, I mean, sometimes you can have a week where you read like two books in a week and then other time, other times it takes like two months just to, to get through a book. Um, the first book I read this year, Master and Margarita, it's a Russian classic. I got it in the end of January and I only just finished it. Um, so yeah, I mean, you kind of just got to, I guess, remove any of the goals around it, which is actually on my little list of uh, little tips um, at the moment as well, which are, what are you doing? Come on. 
All right, so I thought I would just do a bit of a summary as well uh, of 2021 before we fully get into each book review. Uh, And then I've got some, I guess, just like tips around reading as well that I've kind of maybe developed over the last couple of years. Um, So never done this before, but my page count for 2021 was 6,570 pages. That averages out to 18 pages per day, which is super doable. I actually would have thought I read more than that. Um, But yeah, so 25 books, about six and a half thousand pages works out to be about 18 pages a day. So definitely doable. It's not some crazy amount. I definitely didn't read as much in 2021 as I did in 2020. 2020, I broke my hip. I had like all these kind of, uh, I just had a lot of time in the hospital and on the couch. So I ended up reading a little bit more, but still read some amazing books in 2021 um, and it's just like a habit, you know, like any other habit, you just kind of get rolling. Um, and yeah, still, I guess one of the more enjoyable things that I do, um, every day. So, um, I thought I'd do some tips as well, or that I've kind of found around reading. I definitely get asked by a lot of people, like, how do you start reading? Like, what's the best way to get into it? Um, the first, my first tip for that number one would be create a routine around reading. So I guess just like find somewhere in your day that works. For me, I get up in the morning, I make a coffee, I take my dog outside to piss, I come back into the house and then I sit down with my coffee and I read. And I read about 18 pages a day apparently. Um, But for me, that's just what works. I just enjoy it. Uh, I've started reading a little bit more at night just because sometimes I've just guess I've just been getting busier with some of the mornings especially when we do like the US studio stuff because we record that um, pretty early in the morning so I don't get to read then but yeah that's kind of what works for me and uh, it's just become a habit like every day I just sort of just do the same thing I look forward to it especially when I'm reading a really good book it definitely I'm excited to go to sleep so that I can wake up and keep reading. So um, I've started also trying to just generally read a bit more throughout the day. Um, I'm always looking for ways that I could, I guess, improve this whole little schedule that I've got going. I was watching a video on YouTube recently where they said, get a Kindle. Um, There's actually some facts around uh, around people who own Kindles reading more than people that just read books. I'm super attached to like the physical copy of a book I just for me like call it whatever you will but I've got my little way of I re- I've got my stack of unread books that's on my desk at home and then at the start of every year I like stack with this the spine facing outwards the books that I've read and slowly as we get into December there's a pretty big pile of books uh, and it's just I don't know like good accountability it's very visible as well um which is uh, a big part of it. Like my books are just always around me. I never really forget to read. Um, and I remember when I left school and I, I used to read a lot through school. And then as soon as I left school, I always had a bookcase in my room. Um, so there was just always books around it. And I left school, moved to America. I didn't really own as many books. I didn't have books around. And that's when I didn't read that much. And it wasn't until I come back to Australia, got my own um, my own sort of setup again. Like I would read on my iPad and stuff, but it sort of just wasn't the same. But yeah, like when I kind of come back home, 
that's when I really started like buying physical books again. Um, so for me, that was like, I don't know, like a good way to just keep them super visible, keep them always around. Um, but I think now with the habit being so well established, um, I probably am going to move to maybe like doing the Kindle thing at some point as well, but I could always see myself like buying those books. And I think it's a cool thing as well. Like I've got a lot of books at this point. Um, but yeah, I definitely want to make some kind of cool bookcase or whatever, and hopefully inspire my kids to read one day as well. Um, so yeah, that's tip number one, create a routine around reading. Uh, there's a saying too in, I guess you'd call it the literary world. Um, read what you love until you love to read. So if this is like launching point number one, listening to this podcast is going to inspire me to read, then what you want to do, I guess part two would be, what should I read first? read something that you're going to like reading and it doesn't matter whether it's some trashy fucking romance novel it doesn't matter if it's like a kind of biography like whatever it is if you know that you would like to read it then that's what you should read um there's definitely there's definitely the reading there's definitely a scene around it in a way too like have you read the classics have you read this book oh you've got to read this um so to me there's really just no required reading i just read whatever the fuck i want um i think too actually there's probably like another point a lot of my books that i read this is another question i get a lot is um how do you know what to read a lot of what I read are books that come from other books. So someone will cite, uh, I'll be reading a book that I really like and then they'll say, oh, this is taken from this or um, this is in reference to this book uh, or they'll reference an author. So that's kind of, there's like a follow-on effect and I'll find that I'll probably read like four or five books in a very similar kind of lane around a similar topic. And uh I think that's kind of a way to get a pretty good understanding of something. And that's, I guess, more for nonfiction. Um, so yeah, a lot of times you'll read something and then you'll find an author that you like, or there'll be a suggestion kind of in there. Uh, and then it sort of just like goes out from there. It's pretty rare that I get like a shit book that I don't really want to read. There's a, there's one in this pile actually. Um, so yeah, that's kind of like a good way to get your book recommendations. Hurley, shut up. There's food downstairs. It's coming through the studio and he's scratching at the door and it's fucking annoying. Um, Tip number three, don't feel the pressure to finish a book. This was something that I was pretty bad at for a while. uh, And in the last few years, I definitely have just stopped feeling the pressure to read a book. For some reason everyone feels it that if they start something and they're not really feeling it, they sort of just like trudge their way through it. And instead of just admitting to themselves that they don't like that book and they're probably not going to finish it, um, they will just like struggle their way through it for a year and then not read anything else. I say, fuck that. Uh, I definitely think that if you're not feeling a book, put it down, get something that you are going to be into. Um, There was... One book I read all the way through this year that I didn't like it, uh, and I just finished it. I honestly was just like waiting for it to fucking get better. Um, but it's a topic I'm kind of interested in, wanted to see where they'd take it. But if it wasn't, I just would not have read that book. 
there's another book in here by Donald Hoffman called The Case Against Reality. Uh, and that book I didn't finish. It's still in here. It's a cool book. I probably will read it at some point, but I just read a bunch of stuff around the same topic, um, and I just didn't really find it useful at the time. So, yeah, just don't feel bad about just putting the book down. Um, what else is there? Uh, also, tip number four would be think of reading as the same as running when you start running, it fucking hurts. (laughs) All you can think about is not running anymore. Um, and I think for a lot of people, when they first start reading, it's just a punish. Like you get distracted. It's really hard to, um, stay kind of on topic. A lot of people like, man, I have to reread the same page 10 times. That's fine. That will only last a couple weeks in the same way that that feeling will only last a few weeks when it comes to running or any kind of fitness. It's just fitness. It's a way of using your brain. Um, And if you don't, I guess, train and exercise that muscle, it's going to atrophy just like any other muscle. Um, So if you're a person that is in that camp of like, oh man, I just can't read. I, I can't concentrate. I can't do this. I can't do that. Yeah, that's fucking normal, bro. You like if you went to run a marathon, you couldn't do it right now. Um, so it's something that you build up to. It's a skill. You get better at it. Um, actually my brother, perfect point. He was one of those guys, uh, this year he, uh, sorry, in 2021, he was like, I'm really going to start reading. He's read a bunch of books now. Um, and he was in the same boat. He was struggling, but now he loves it. He's always reading something. It's turned into a really consistent, um, thing for him. Um, so my fifth and final tip for reading would be don't set any goals around reading. This is my perspective on it. If you want to set goals around reading, by all means do it. But for me, I don't have any kind of goals. Um, I guess mainly because it is a habit at this point and it's just something that I do do. So I don't really need to not like trick myself into it. It's probably not the right word, but I guess I don't really need that much motivation to do it. Um, cause it is something I just really enjoy doing, but I just think it kind of would ruin the fun of it. Like I don't have a, I'm going to read 50 books this year. I'm going to read that. It's just, I just cruise along. I read what I want to read. I end up reading most days of the year. Um, and it becomes like a really rewarding experience. I think that if you put goals or limitations or anything like that on it, it kind of just take the fun out of it. Um, So anyway, that's my five little tips. So if you're new to reading, you want to get into reading, um, hopefully that advice gives you uh, a little bit of help. So uh, also I did some research. The average average American reads 12 books per year. I don't know if I believe that, but I feel like there's probably just a bunch of college people out there that have to read a bunch of books that it bumps up the average. I think the more telling statistic is is that half of Americans – uh, read four or less books a year. So I'd say that's probably like that, the, um, I guess like a more telling statistic. Uh, but yeah, anyway, so we'll get into it. Book number one, this is, uh, Atomic Habits by James Clear. This is my most recommended book. Whenever I tell any, or whenever anybody asks me what book they should read first, if they've never read, I just tell them to read Atomic Habits. You're killing two birds with one stone. You're learning about habits. 
whilst also trying to create a habit of reading. So to me, this one makes sense. Three million copies sold. I've even got uh, something from this. uh, 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 I've actually got the equation from this book tattooed on me, uh, which is if you get 1% better at something for 365 days, you're going to end up 37.78 times better at that thing. Um, that was one of the, I guess, one of the concepts in this book. I don't know if I can find the actual, I guess that was just like one of the concepts. There's a few concepts in this book. I think I even talked about this in the last one. Um, that really, once I read it, I just couldn't unread it. If that makes sense. It just kind of like hit my brain and I was like, damn, getting 1% better at something is like a pretty viable, uh, pretty viable proposition every day for a year, whether it's like stretching, whether it's fitness, jujitsu, the podcast. So I kind of just thought about that, um, that equation in my head and I was like, fuck, it's sort of does not make sense not to do that. So it was just, yeah, a, a concept that comes directly from this book that just stayed with me basically forever. Um, there's also, there's also a really great analogy in here where uh, James Clear talks about basically everybody on the start of the Olympic 100-meter uh, final having the same goal and that we really should just like do away with goals because only one person ends up winning that gold medal and it's not through the fact that the other guys didn't want to win that medal they all wanted to win the same thing but it was basically like who followed the process the uh, better to get to that goal Um, and that was another concept that it just really stuck with me Um, and I've I've never really been a big goal setter anyway, um, but this book really, I guess, gave me a bit of framework around that. Um, so yeah, this is one of my favorite books of all time. I've read it a few times now. Uh, the audio book's really good. Uh, I've got the hard copy of this as well um, because uh, there's just a bunch of different like different equations and graphs and things like that. Um, there is another, like, so yeah, first law, make it obvious. Um, so this is kind of comes back to what I was saying. When you're trying to build a habit around reading, make it obvious by having books around like every day in my house, I'm kind of like bombarded with books around. There's at no point. Can I forget that I'm in the middle of reading something? Um, so yeah, this book, it's changed my life for the better. Um, Almost everyone in my family's read it. A lot of my friends have read it. Oh, here we go. Luck right there. 1% better every day. So if you get 1% better every day for a year, uh, sorry, 1% worse every day for a year, you end up worse off than you were. But if you get 1% uh, better for the year, you end up 37.78 times uh, better. So very interesting on a graph right there uh uh, that's probably the other thing too so there's this like graph that you've got here uh that's represented with the one percent better every day that graph just kind of like started showing up in my life once i really started paying attention to it you could see it in youtube analytics you could see it in uh itunes analytics you could see it like i could feel it myself in like flexibility because that was kind of like a big thing with me was stretching um trying to get better at that 
I just I, I mentally picture this graph now um, whenever I'm trying to build a new habit or whenever I'm working on the stuff that I'm kind of been working on for a while so I recommend this book to everybody um, it's a great first book to read on to the next one Hurley please shut up honestly it's just ridiculous at this point next book Gucci Mane the autobiography uh, if you don't know who Gucci Mane is he is a rapper uh, he was an Atlanta rapper went to jail a bunch of times killed some people uh, got off with self defense but spent a bunch of time in jail spent more time in jail for like uh, breaking parole but yeah this dude when I was living in America I spent a lot of time in Atlanta Gucci Mane pretty much run Atlanta um and when I was over there, he was sort of like, he was basically the shit. Gucci Man was the man. Uh, Jane Cordwell actually recommended me this book. I read this book super quick, actually, when we went to the bend. I pretty much read it on half of it on the plane there and half of it on the plane home. Um, super easy to read. Again, just this is one of those books where I was saying the it's like a matter of perspective in a way like I could never be this dude I could never have have his life or his experiences um so reading this book was a really cool look into the mind of of a guy like Gucci Mane who come from the streets uh, to being a extremely famous rapper um I also just love stories of like fame and seeing how people deal with fame as well it's always really interesting to me um so yeah if you're looking for something easy to read something fun to read something crazy um then yeah gucci main the autobiography uh genghis khan and the making of the modern world this is yeah this was an incredible book uh it's sort of I really like how this was done because it, it's like a biography of, of Genghis Khan. Um, and then like a, the, it kind of, it's in almost like an epic narrative form. Um, and then it sort of focuses on Genghis Khan's life, how he built the Mongol empire, his death, and then the succession of his family and kind of, um, how it all went down. But a, a massive focus of the book is, the ways in which the Mongols actually shaped so much of modern civilization. Um, these guys were responsible just through just complete global conquest. They were responsible for so many things like paper money. Uh, they, they joined the, the world, like the world literally became a bigger place in terms of how it was known. Um, because of Genghis Khan and the Mongols. I got a couple little bits to read um, from it. Sorry if I mess up. I'm not not the best at reading out aloud. Um, in all the centuries of, raid, of raiding and trading, no leader had brought back to his homeland nearly the amount of goods as Genghis Khan. But vast as the quantities were, the appetites of his, of his own people were insatiable. As he returned from his campaigns, his caravans were laden with valuable goods, but each load created the desire for yet more. Every Mongol could sit in his gur on lacquered furniture, draped in silk. Every maiden was perfumed, painted with makeup, and bejeweled. Everyone riding horse, 
uh, every riding horse was fixed with metal fittings and every warrior with bronze and iron weapons. To work their crafts, the thousands of new craftsmen needed more raw materials, everything from wood, clay, cloth to bronze, gold and silver. To feed these workers, constant supplies of barley, wheat and other food commodities had to be hauled across the vast wastelands, separating the herders' pastures and the agricultural field, fields of the south. And the more the cap and the more captives Genghis Khan brought home, the more food and equipment he had to obtain to supply them. Novelties became necessities, and each caravan of cargo stimulated a craving for more. The more he conquered, the more he had to conquer. Um, yeah, the, it's it's so crazy because the before Genghis Khan, the Mongolian people were just these different tribes that had these family leaders and in no way at all were they united. So it was like this country, uh, like landmass, but it just wasn't a country at all. It was just these different tribes. Uh, Temujin, as he was named before he became Genghis Khan, um, was almost like an orphan in a way. Uh, and then he ended up becoming this great warrior that ended up uniting all of the the Mongols. As soon as he united the Mongols, he basically, which he which he kind of did through war. Um, then he started moving on the Chinese. He started moving across uh, through Europe, all through the Middle East. Um, and the stories of like the amount of people he killed and all that sort of stuff kind of go on forever. Um, but through this empire that he created, was so massive this empire and, and took in so many people. Uh, he was, I guess the, the first leader in the world that promoted complete religious freedom because he basically had like more, uh, Muslims, Christians, Buddhists, all these different types of religions that were kind of fell under his empire. And he basically didn't discriminate at all for people's religious, um, I guess, belief system. Basically, he just wanted people that were useful to the empire. Uh, this is another kind of interesting uh, little little fact as well. Um, Genghis Khan had authorized the use of paper money backed by precious metals and silk shortly before his death in 1227. The practice grew erratically in the coming years, but by the time Monkey Khan's, of Monkey Khan's reign, which was, I think, one of his sons, it became necessary to limit the paper money supply in ways that was not necessary to do with gold and silver coins. Monkey recognized the dangers incurred by earlier administrations that issued paper money and debt on an ad hoc basis, and in 1253 he created a Department of Monetary Affairs to control and standardize the, uh, the issuance of paper money. The superintendent of the agency centralized control to prevent the overissue of paper money and the erosion of its value through inflation. Sounds a lot like the shit that's going down today. Uh, so this was in the 12, uh, 1200s. So these kind of books just give you such a, uh, I guess, just like such a great look into how our world was shaped. If you're into a book like this, then another book that I would recommend everybody reading is Sapiens. Uh, it's a really dense, thick book. It's called A Brief History of Humankind. I'm pretty sure. I got it there. Oh, no. Must be at home. Um, but it's the same deal. Like you can really see like why we're in the exact situation that we're in. Um, and yeah, this is another book that is like that. So great book. 10 out of 10. Would recommend think and grow rich if you listen to the mike grondel podcast uh 
this is the book that started his, I guess, his success. He went on to become a multi, multi, multi-millionaire. So he really did think and grow rich. Uh, this book was recommended to me by Mike. Uh, I read it. I've read a bunch of similar stuff. Um, so I guess this wasn't a uh, mind-blowing book in in that sense. I guess just because I'd kind of uh, read a bunch of stuff like this before. Um, but nevertheless, this is a great book. And if you've never really read anything along this kind of... Uh, along these lines, then this is a great book to read. Napoleon Hill is an extremely famous author. Um, and yeah, 20 million copies sold. So it's just kind of one of the OG, um, self-improvement kind of books and crazy results, man. Like Mike Grondel basically used this book to then reverse engineer, uh, his planet fitness business. And he had a kind of a a, a number in mind that he wanted to make in terms of money. Uh, and then he read this book and then kind of reverse engineered his own success. And you read this book and like keep his story in mind and you can really see how he used something like this to, to grow a fortune of millions of dollars, which is pretty fucking crazy. If you ask me, uh, this book, super cool. Uh, Jocko Willink, The Dichotomy of Leadership. Uh, Jocko Willink is a former Navy SEAL. Um, he was one of the, like, the Navy SEAL commanders in uh, Afghanistan, Ramadi. Uh, he, I've actually met him. He's an insanely cool guy. I think it was when he wrote Extreme Ownership. Um, and I'm pretty sure that's in another book review podcast. Um, I actually think the concept of Extreme Ownership is pretty rad. Um, and that's a really great book to read. Um, I think this book actually though helped me more, but I, I guess I don't know whether it helped me more because I'd already read, uh, extreme ownership, but either way, two really great books. Um, the whole leadership thing is something that I guess I've been just thinking about more and more, uh, lately, especially last year, just because it was the first year I'd ever had staff that worked for me full time. And it was like every day would come in, uh, and it was my job to be the leader of, you know, the whole gypsy tales thing. And it was a unique position to find myself in, not something that I've done before. And to be honest, I was kind of struggling with it for a while. Uh, looked at every, to be honest, I just looked at everything as Ronan's fault. Uh, and then I kind of went back to the whole extreme ownership thing and I was like, ah, oh, fuck, you're cooking it. Uh, and then I went on Amazon and I bought this book and I read it and it was very, very helpful to me. Um, yeah. And I mean, if you remember from the Chase Sexton podcast, uh, I actually recommended this book to him as well, because I really think that leadership is a very, I guess it's just like a rare commodity these days. It just doesn't seem like that many people want to kind of step up and really be a leader. And I guess where, uh, where that badge, um, because I guess that comes with a lot of extra accountability. Um, but I just, I generally think that we're lacking leadership kind of across society. And I think that at any level, if you're a dude, uh, that's listening to this podcast, you can be a leader. I've said it a bunch of times before, but you can be a leader for your friends. You can be a leader for your family. You can be a leader in your relationship. You can be a leader in your workplace, even if you're not, uh, the boss. Um, and I think that leadership is one of the 
skills that is worth cultivating uh, on a practical level and I think it's also worth cultivating on a philosophical and intellectual level Uh, and reading books like this definitely help it's kind of a cool format basically they talk about like a battle scenario and then of you know kind of war which is I guess the most extreme version of you know having to be a leader and then they kind of tie it back to a business and everyday sense so there's a couple cool passages in here maybe um that I was gonna read I found this one pretty cool as well um so yeah they they talk about the I guess like the scenario and then they kind of go through the principle of it so I'll just read this paragraph now Every leader must be willing and able to lead, but just as important as a leader's ability uh, is a leader's ability to follow. A leader must be willing to learn on the expertise. Fuck, I'm cooking at a reading. Speaking of doing a reading podcast, a leader must be willing to lean on the expertise and ideas of others for the good of the team. Leaders must be willing to listen and follow others, regardless of whether they are junior or less experienced. If someone has a great idea or specific knowledge that puts them in the best position to lead a particular project, a good leader recognizes that it doesn't matter who gets the credit, only that the mission is accomplished in the most effective manner possible. Confident leaders encourage junior members of the team to step up and lead when they put forth ideas that will contribute to mission success. When the team wins, much of the credit goes to the leader, whether or not the leader was the person giving the operation tactics or strategy, uh, driving the operation tactics or strategy. A good leader pushes the praise and accolades down to their team. Um, so yeah, that was, I guess, pretty important for, for me to sort of really recognize that, you know, it's sort of not just about uh, being a good leader. It's also about being a good follower that comes down to humility um, giving people more responsibility uh, and then, you know, kind of passing on the credit when, when they do uh, eventually do a great job. So, yeah, this was something that really helped me. Uh, easy, super easy book to read, um, but a ton of really valuable advice. Really, you were disrupting this shit so much today. Can you just get on your bed and chill? Uh, all right, next book. This was one of my favorite books. This was a monster to read uh, I started read. I think this was the first book I ended up reading of 2021 um, Mutiny on the Bounty it is by Peter Fitzsimmons I don't know like I don't know whether this is a novel or not is it a novel yeah I don't know it's ba- it's obviously based on the bounty um, which to give you a real brief kind of uh synopsis is basically was a ship that was commissioned to go to Tahiti uh to get breadfruit uh there's like this fruit in Tahiti that you can put it in an, in the fire basically make like a fire oven out of it and then you crack it open you scrape up all, all the uh all the shit that's black and burn and then you just eat it and it's literally like bread uh, I've never had it it's kind of a reason I want to go to Tahiti now is just to have breadfruit. Um, but basically the plan was, is they specially built the mutant, uh, the bounty, the mutiny, they built the bounty to basically, uh, 
house these plants. So they were basically, they go over to Tahiti, they set up a nursery, they start to grow seedlings of uh, these breadfruit trees. And then they had this specially designed hull in the bounty. And then they were going to sail that boat to uh, Jamaica. And it was going to, it was going to feed the slaves um, because I guess they had a problem in the, uh, in the uh, English Empire, the British Empire, of uh, feeding all of their all of their slaves. So they built this boat. Anyway, they get to Tahiti. Tahiti girls are hot as fuck, apparently, and all the sailors start rooting all the Tahitians, and uh, none of them want to leave. Bly makes them end up leaving, and then there's a whole thing. Uh, it's called mutiny on the bounty. You can assume there's probably a mutiny, but the story just once you get to the mutiny part. What happens next is just like stranger than fiction. You honestly could not write fiction that was as weird and wild as what this got. And it's all a true story. Uh, it's incredible. Just at every level, it is fucking incredible. And it just leaves you scratching your head. It's a really big book. It's a mission to get through. Um, I actually split this between I'd read it and then I would do like an audio book chapter um me and sammy i remember one day we drove to gimpy and we listened to it for a bit um and then yeah so i kind of like split it up otherwise it was just going to take forever to read but man awesome book uh i've bought another book of peter fitzsimmons he's an australian author too by the way which is really cool i'd love to have him on the podcast one day um i bought another one which is called batavia which is about a dutch shipwreck that is off the coast of wa um you can actually dive that so i want to read that book and then maybe go dive that one day so this is an epic epic book do yourself a favor get the book then get the audio book and uh yeah you will not be disappointed i wonder if there's i got a couple little markers here i wonder if it's worth reading out oh yeah this is something about the breadfruit uh william dampier 1688 describing breadfruit the natives use it for bread they gather it when full grown while it is green and hard then they bake it in an oven which scorcheth the rind and makes it black but they scrape off the outside black crust and there remains a tender thin crust and the inside is soft tender and white like the crumb of a penny loaf Uh, so that's describing the old bread fruit and then uh land ho chapter four all the sailors swore that they never saw handsomer made women in their lives and they declared they would all to a man live on two-thirds allowance rather than lose so fine an opportunity of getting a girl apiece they were fully obsessed with the tahitian women it caused some real problems uh that was george robinson master of the dolphin on captain wallace's expedition to tahiti in 1767 Born under the most beautiful skies, fed on the fruits of a land that is fertile and requires no cultivation, the Tahitians know no other gods but love. Every day is dedicated to it. The entire island is a temple, every woman its altar, every man its priest. (laughs) And what sort of women, you ask? The rival of Georgians in beauty and the sisters of the utterly naked graces. They neither shame nor modesty exercise their tyranny. So yeah, this book, fucking incredible. So, so worth a read. And then the, uh, I think, was it like the first chapter of this? 
No, the prologue of this is actually what made me read the Captain Cook biography, which is coming up at some point in this uh, book review. How Emotions Are Made, The Secret Life of the Brain by Lisa Feldman Barrett. Damn, this book is so fucking good. Uh, I listened to a podcast with Lisa Feldman Barrett on Lex Friedman's podcast, and instantly I was just so pumped. Um, if you listen to last year's podcast, there was a lot of, I guess, neuroscience sort of stuff in there, as well as some meditation stuff. I'm so interested in the way in which science and the, I guess, meditation stuff kind of intersect and overlap, and they're all just saying the same shit. Uh, and then I try and, I guess, put that into my own experience in a way, uh, and it's kind of yeah it's super super interesting to me uh, the brain and how we think and how we feel and how we interface with the world has been just a fascination of mine my whole life but it's only been in the last I guess like three or four years that I've really kind of I guess started to get some good knowledge around it and it's just I guess that knowledge you know the old saying knowledge is power but it's just changed so much in my life and then you add in I guess the meditation like the practical side of it and actually sitting and like really sitting with these kind of things um yeah it's just it's been it's been epic so really recommend this book she's got another book in this pile which is like coming up in a couple uh seven and a half lessons on the brain I can't remember which one was like new at the time but one of these was like a pre-order um but yeah this is a, a really really interesting book I've got a few things um highlighted here that uh would be cool to read um what's the first one i'm sorry about my reading i never really read out aloud either so basically uh one of the cool revelations in this book there's a bunch of like just revelations like the way the things that we taught were taught in school were just no longer accepted by science uh, but I just don't think that's filtered down to the everyday person these days. Um, but basically that we're just like, we're prediction machines. Like the first chapter of seven and a half lessons in the brain is that your brain is for, uh, predicting, not thinking. Um, and I guess it sort of fits this whole model of, of really what our first person experience is is just like this consciousness and basically like the interface that we have with what we call reality is just a projection that's happening within uh our mind which is fucking crazy to get your head around um there's a i'll just i guess i'll just read a, a small paragraph here um, suppose you're playing baseball. Someone throws the ball in your direction and you reach out and catch it. Most likely you'd experience this as two events, seeing a ball and then catching it. If your brain actually reacted like this, however, baseball couldn't exist as a sport. Your brain has about half a second to prepare to catch a baseball in a typical game. This isn't enough time to process the visual input, calculate where the ball will land, make the decision to move, coordinate all the muscle movements and send the motor commands uh, to move you into a position to make the catch. Prediction makes the game possible. 
Your brain launches predictions well before you consciously see the ball, just like it predicts a red apple in the grocery store using your past experience. As each prediction propagates through millions of prediction loops, your brain stimulates the sights, sounds, and other sensations that the prediction represents, as well as the actions you will take to catch the ball. Your brain then compares this simulation to actual sensory input if they match success. The prediction is correct and the sensory input proceeds uh, proceeds no further into your brain. Your body is now prepared to catch the ball and your movement is based on your prediction. Finally, you consciously see the ball and then catch it. So that's kind of cool to think about. Uh, there's a whole, obviously, chapter on that. Um, there's also, uh, I guess, this concept of a body budget. Um, and basically, I guess the the thinking behind uh, this is just the fact that, um, predictions and like the caching of these predictions, uh, are actually a way more economical way for the body to use its energy. And the brain is actually, it takes such a large percentage, um, of what Lisa Feldman Barrett calls the body budget. Um, as it turns out, this is me reading again, as it turns out, people spend at least half of their waking hours simulating rather than paying attention to the world around them. And this pure simulation strongly drives their feelings. I'm skipping ahead a little bit here. In contrast, when you lose a close loving relationship or feel physically ill about it, part of the reason that your beloved, uh, part of the reason for that is your beloved one is no longer helping you regulate your body budget. You feel like you've lost a part of yourself because in a sense you have. Um, so yeah, this chapter is just really, really interesting. Uh, and it's called the origin of feeling. Um, but it's really interesting. So again, like this is kind of a little intersection between meditation and science. Um, so you get, you know, this chapter that says, uh, this paragraph that says, as it turns out, people spend at least half of their waking hours simulating rather than paying attention to the world around them. And this pure simulation, uh, strongly drives their feelings. This is the exact same thing that the Buddha said 2000 plus, uh, 5,000 years ago. Um, so yeah, this is kind of what I guess I enjoy reading these kinds of books and then the more spiritual stuff because it just matches one-to-one um, and we're just finding out more and more and more. Um, but yeah, I guess when you have this kind of knowledge, it really just kind of helps you take less stock in the way that you feel um, because a lot of times your feelings just get in the way of like shit that's actually important. Um... The concept of affect is pretty cool too, uh, which is basically just like this, uh, there's like valence and then affect, um, which is, I guess the, that is what feeling is. There's a, like a little kind of diagram here that sort of sh- can fit all of your feelings, I guess, like into this one, uh, one of these sections. So some really cool stuff there. Um, what else was, there's so much stuff. Oh, this was really cool too. Concepts, goals, and words. Um, there's a really cool analogy here. Let me see it on the thing. Uh, basically rainbow that's drawn with stripes and a continuous rainbow. Um, so like in terms of what is actually happening in a rainbow, there is no clear definition between the colors. Um, but because of the concepts that our brain has for colors, 
um, it gets grouped and it's shown in a rainbow. It's like really definitive lines. So the chapter kind of starts with that. Um, there's a cool little paragraph that I've highlighted here while I was going. Um, shall I read that bit? This whole chapter is so sick. Um, without concepts, you'd experience a world of ever fluctuating noise. Everything you'd ever encountered would be unlike everything else. You'd be experientially blind. Like when you first saw the block... Oh, yeah, you didn't see that picture. Um, I'll actually just read the first little bit of this chapter. When you look at a rainbow, you see discrete stripes of color, roughly like the drawing on the left side of figure 5-1. But in nature, a rainbow has no stripes. It's a continuous spectrum of light with wavelengths that range from approximately 400 to 750 nanometers. This spectrum has no borders or bands of any kind. Why do you and I see stripes? Because we have mental concepts for colors like red, orange, and yellow. Your brain automatically uses these concepts to group together the wavelengths of certain, uh, in certain ranges of the spectrum, categorizing them as the same color. Your brain downplays the variation within each color category and magnifies the difference between the categories, causing you to perceive bands of color. Human speech is also continuous, a stream of sound. Yet when you listen to your native language, you hear discrete words. How does that happen? Once again, you use concepts to categorize the continuous input. Beginning in infancy, you learn regulatories in the stream of speech that reveal uh, the boundaries between phonemes the smallest bits of sounds that you can distinguish is a language for example the sound of d or p in english these regularities become concepts uh, that your brain later uses to categorize the stream of sound into syllables and words um so then this like concepts keep going uh i guess like all the way down um, where, when it comes to just like knowledge and, you know, grouping of people, etc., um, it is said that concept, uh, that a concept is represented in the brain as the best example of its category known as the prototype. Uh, in this view, as you learn about a category, your brain supposedly represents the concept as a single prototype. It might be the most frequent example of the category or the most typical ex example meaning the instance that is the closest match or has the majority of a category's features. Um, this is like pretty interesting for me, I guess, because I've always kind of said when it comes to jiu-jitsu, I like to learn in concepts. Um, so I guess it's just like groups of information that like look similar. So the example that I use, and I mean, you can sort of see this in motocross too, right? So it's like a concept is weight the outside of the peg you're going to use that in a multitude of different like specific instances, but it's kind of just like this category that you can group together. Um, in jujitsu, it's like to get an underhook on the opposite side or like the far side of a person's body. Um, so you can do that whether you're on the top, you can do that from the bottom. Um, there's like all these different ways in which like that concept applies. When it comes to guard passing, that if you've got, you know, the soles of somebody's feet are pointed towards you, then don't put weight on that person uh, and deflect them away from you. If you have deflected the soles of somebody's feet away from you, then you should put your weight on that person. So that's just concepts. It's like there's so many specific scenarios where that is the case. 
Um, but they're all like different scenarios, but they kind of come under like that form under that same concept. So anyway, this book goes into, I guess, talking about emotions, um, the way that biology plays on emotions gets a lot into, I guess, like the self. Um, so yeah, this is, this is one of the coolest books that I read, uh, last year. Loved it. I think you'll love it as well. Maybe you won't. Uh, next book, The Case Against Reality, How Evolution Hid the Truth from Our Eyes. This book actually inspired some of that book. This was one of the books I didn't end up finishing all the way uh, last year, just because I'd kind of re- I'd just read those other two. A lot of it sort of overlapped. Um, Lisa Feldman Barrett is not making any... I guess, assumptions about the nature of reality is she's just talking about the way that we actually do see and perceive, um, reality. But essentially this book is all about, uh, the way that we didn't evolve to see reality for what it is. Um, and that basically he's run these, uh, he's obviously a scientist, um, but he's run these like mathematical equations, uh, and he's come up with, I guess like at the base of it is this theory of like fitness payoffs. So there's all of these biological, uh, organisms. You can run it as like AI simulations, uh, in computers. And it kind of comes up with the same, uh, the same result is that basically, things that are designed for fitness payoffs actually perform better than uh, things that can see like all of, I'm not really saying this right. How would I use this as an example? Uh, Maybe I should have read the whole book. So you've got like an organism and it's like, does that organism need to know all of the things about the environment that it's in to succeed? Will it make it more successful? Or will an organism be more successful if it is evolved to only see the things that are relevant to its survival? Um, and you know, there's so many, like an example of this would be like a bat in a cave. It's like they, they, they can't see in the dark. There's no, uh, like they're not seeing reality in the way that we would say it's reality. Um, they're not even using their eyes in that sense. They're using like a sonar system. Um, so it's like they're, designed like they've evolved to not see reality their or objective reality their reality is completely different based on their fitness payoffs um so he kind of just really just goes all the way down uh and what it i guess gets down to or he's putting toward uh, putting forward a model of reality that's basically um you've got two schools of thought and I guess the, the general consensus among scientists right now is that you have this physical world where you've got atoms and matter and then that matter eventually gives rise to consciousness, uh, organisms that can experience themselves. So I guess that's like the, uh, I guess it would be called like materialist. Then the opposite side of that is basically that like consciousness is the thing that permeates everything and there's no physical reality. There's just like this mental reality. And as far as like first person experience goes, then yes, there is only a, I guess, mental reality because, you know, we're just 
essentially like a brain in a box of a skull and then we see this vivid projection of the world but i think that in i guess like more we, we think we see the world like one-to-one as it is so this book is a case against that reality uh it's super interesting if you are interested in this topic but you don't think that you would want to read this book um just search donald hoffman podcast uh he did one with sam harris and annika harris his wife uh, which was really cool. He's done one with Lex Friedman. Um, but yeah, it's just really interesting. And he kind of has a point where you get to the end of the road when it comes to uh, this whole physical... There, there, there's a thing that exists called the hard problem of consciousness. And it's like, we just don't know what gives rise to consciousness within organisms. And it's like, you've got this matter that when it's organized in a particular way, it gives rise to experience. And it's like, you can kind of make the argument that everything in the world is not real apart from experience. Like the fact that we are experiencing ourselves, that's about the only real like fundamental claim that you can even like make about the universe at this point. And it goes back to Descartes, Uh, when he says, I think, therefore I am, uh, he was trying to like reduce down this argument of like, okay, so what is like a statement that I can say that is real, um, that I I guess I can't be pulled apart. So anyway, super fucking interesting, super deep. I think I will go back and read this at some point, but yeah, like there's just a lot, I guess I've just spent a lot of stuff uh, I spent a lot of time reading stuff like this and learning about this stuff. So it was, yeah, just didn't really feel the need to finish that one at the present time. Uh, the next book, The Hustler by Walter Tevies. Uh, this is the same author that wrote, uh, The Queen's Gambit. I love Queen's Gambit. That was in my 2021 review. Um, this was another epic book, basically about a pool shark that, uh, drove across the country, landed in Philadelphia to, uh, to basically challenge Minnesota Fats, who's like the best pool player in America, um, and make his name, you know, become famous, uh, ends up, yeah, just ends up fucking getting in a a bit of shit, you know, as you can imagine a pool shark would do, uh, in the sixties. Um, it's a really, really cool novel. I think Walter Tevies is, is amazing. I've got one more novel to read from him. The man that fell from the stars, I think, uh, it's like more of like an extraterrestrial thing. I've got it, got it at home, but I haven't read it yet. Um, I love him as an author. It's a really great book. This one's super, super easy and fun to read. Um, there was a cool little passage here that I was going to read. Uh, and Eddie's the main character. Um, Fast Eddie, the great man. Uh, and playing him, Eddie slowly became aware of something he had not been aware of about himself for a long time. Of how much he enjoyed playing pool. Things of that kind, things that simple can be forgotten easily especially in all of the questions about money and gambling, talent and character, born winner and born loser. They, uh, I'll just read that again. I've got a phone call, sorry. Things of that kind, things that simple can be forgotten easily, especially in all of the questions of money and gambling, talent and character, born winner and born loser. And they can come as a shock to Eddie. Eddie loved to play pool. 
uh, Eddie loved to play pool. There was kind of a power, a kind of brilliant coordination of mind and skill that could give him as much pleasure, as much delight in himself and in other things that he did as anything else in the world. Some men never feel this way about anything, but Eddie had felt it. As long as he could remember about pool. He loved the hard sound the balls made. He loved the feel of the green wool cloth under his hand and the other hand gently holding the butt of his cue, tapping leather on ivory. Um, so I thought that was a pretty cool little paragraph um, written extremely well and made me think about writing, actually. Um, so yeah, really cool book, this one. If you want an easy, cool novel to read that you'll guarantee, be basically guaranteed to enjoy, this is a cool book for you. Next book, Stephen King, The Gunslinger, Dark Tower, Volume 1. Uh, my mum got me this for Christmas. I think it's actually the longest fiction series of all time. Um, it's eight books. All of them are massive. This one's not. Uh, this book was sick. I read it uh, kind of towards the start of the year. Um, I actually think, I only just had this thought the other day. I think that I'm actually going to read this one. Uh, I'll, I'll listen to some of these is what I'm trying to say. I got a fucking dog that has been the most annoying dog in the world today. Um, yeah, so basically uh, there's a gunslinger. It's like this po- post-apocalyptic world. Um, and he basically spent this whole first book uh, chasing down the man in black. And yeah, it was just a really cool kind of fantasy novel um there was this pretty cool little bit here that i was gonna read i just really suck at reading out aloud if i ever do an audio book then i'm gonna be in big trouble um he went down the steps and walked backwards into the desert 10 paces 20 the back door of the barbershop flew open and they boiled out he caught a glimpse of sylvia pittston he opened up they fell in squats they fell backwards tumbled over the railing into the dust They cast no shadows in the deathless purple light of the day. He realized he was screaming. He'd been screaming all along. His eyes felt... His eyes felt like cracked ball bearings. His balls had drawn up against his belly. His legs were wood. His ears were iron. The guns were empty and they boiled at him, transmogrified in an eye and a hand, and he stood screaming and reloading, his mind far away and absent, letting his hands do their reloading trick. Could he hold up a hand? Tell them that he could he hold up a hand. Tell them he had spent a thousand years learning this trick and others. Tell them of the guns and the blood that had blessed them, not with his mouth, but his but with his hands could speak their own tale. So yeah, he basically just like fucking murdered this whole city uh, on his way to try and chase down the man in black, which was pretty wild, wild scene to read. So. Uh, pretty big investment that one to get through that whole series probably going to take me a few years but um, yeah I definitely enjoyed it Stephen King's a brilliant writer so pretty pretty hard not to enjoy his novels um, Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain another Lisa Feldman Barra book this book is brilliant this one is so easy to read if you're looking for a really cool non-fiction book to read that will i guess like give you some crazy perspective on life um uh, then this is it i actually didn't really notice at the time but this looks a lot like a mandelbrot set uh, which we'll talk about quite soon um 
I'll read out the seven and a half lessons. Not the whole book, obviously, but, you know, just go to the uh, table of contents. The half lesson. Your brain is not for thinking. Uh, it's for predicting. Spoiler alert. Uh, you have one brain, not three. I don't know if you've ever heard of the the whole like triune brain like we've got the reptile brain and then we've got the primate brain and then we've got the what's the one at the front like prefrontal cortex and that's like for feeling and all that shit that's bullshit so that's one of those things that you like spend a lot of time in school learning it's just not real uh modern neuroscience has basically kicked that theory to the curb your brain is a network uh this also speaks to a lot of the work that's getting done right now in computer science and neural networks and actually a lot of these neural networks are being built by analog computers which is crazy um not the uh just the straight digital shit uh little brains wire themselves to the world is lesson number three your brain predicts almost everything that you do uh lesson five your brain secretly works with other brains uh brains make more than one kind of mind that one is very cool and if you go and live in another country you can definitely see how that happens uh and then lesson seven our brains can create reality so yeah this is a really 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 cool book um i guess this goes i'll read out this um little chapter here or not chapter but this little deal According to this evolutionary story, the human brain ended up with three layers, one for surviving, one for feeling, and one for thinking, an arrangement known as the triune brain. The deepest layer, or the lizard lizard brain, which we allegedly inherited from ancient reptiles, is said to house our survival instincts. The middle layer, dubbed the limbic system, supposedly contains ancient parts for emotion that we inherited from prehistoric mammals. The outermost layer, part of the cerebral cortex, is said to be uniquely human and the source of rational thought. It's known as the neocortex or new new cortex. One part of your neocortex, called, called the prefrontal cortex, supposedly regulates your emotional brain and your lizard brain to keep your rational, animalistic self in check. Advocates of the Trojan brain note that humans have a very large uh, cerebral cortex, which they see as evidence of our distinctly rational nature. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Cool. Bullshit. It's all over. They're done. Uh, And she says here quite bluntly, this is what's cool too, is like you see a scientist like just straight up saying, no, we know this is wrong. Fortunately, we don't have to reconcile them because one of them is wrong. 
The triune brain idea is one of the most successful and widespread errors in all of science. So yeah, for anyone out there that's gone and I've done this, I'm just like, ah, you know, it's just that fucking deep animal part. It's just wrong. It's not how shit works. Um, Great book. Read it. It's fucking unreal. The Peter Principle, uh, Why Things Always Go Wrong. This was another recommendation by one Mike Grondel. Uh, I didn't read all of this uh, because I basically kind of just got the principle pretty quick. Um, Final placement at the level of incompetence is kind of the basic thinking here. Um, And it's kind of true. And I've started thinking about this in my own life. Like I look at where I'm at right now in my life and it's basically maxed out to my current capabilities of like what I'm putting in is what I'm getting out. And there's points where like, I'm just not good enough to do certain things that need to get done. And it's like, I guess it's a weird concept, but basically like wherever you're at in life right now, that's like, that's the best you fucking got (laughs) for whatever reason. Um, so yeah, it's a pretty cool, a pretty cool book. And a lot of this is focused on, I guess, like the hierarchy of, uh, work like a work environment like a company type deal basically like he goes into why a lot of bosses is just shit at their job um and he calls it like failing upwards so some really interesting stuff here i definitely don't find that stuff to be very relevant to me because i kind of just work for myself and i don't have to deal with that shit um but if you're a person that lives in like a corporate world this is probably a pretty cool book to read probably give you some understanding of why you've got dickhead bosses constantly but very interesting little book uh, a lot it was written like satirically as well which is kind of cool but he's just like bang on the money welcome to the book that i hated the most this year stealing fire this was written by yeah the same people that wrote the rise of superman which i thought was a kind of cool book i read it when i lived in america but this was just shit um yeah i mean I, I wanted to read this and I was like, I was thinking, I've got an idea for a book that I want to write at some point in my life. Um, and it will be around, I guess, like the self and meditation and action sports and what we're all feeling when we're writing and why we try to chase that feeling and blah, blah, blah. And I was like reading into this. And I'm like, man, maybe these guys already kind of wrote that book. Um, and it turns out they didn't they just wrote a bunch of fucking nonsense essentially um so yeah i don't know i didn't even really keep much of this on board the one thing i took from this is that a lot of animals do fucking drugs which was kind of cool but yeah don't read that not worth it this book is dope the courage to be disliked this is an international bestseller it sold three million copies worldwide i was recommended this by someone in the dms i can't remember very sorry but it was fucking really good um i read this thing in like a couple of days just because i really 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 enjoyed it um it's basically a philosophical conversation it's written by two japanese gentlemen um but it's like a philosophical back and forward Uh, between like this old Japanese philosopher and then this young dude that comes to his house to kind of debate his ideas back and forward. Um, And yeah, I just, I really loved it. I think, I think anybody could read this book and enjoy it as well. Someone read it and said they didn't like it though, which I found weird. Um, 
but yeah, I, I really, really enjoyed it. Um, and I'll probably read it again at some point. Um, there's like a, I'll just give you a little example. Do not live to satisfy the expectations of others. Philosopher. Being recognized by others is certainly something to be happy about, but it would be wrong to say that being recognized is absolutely necessary. For what one, for what does one seek recognition in the first place? Or to put it more succinctly, why does one want to be recognized by others? Youth. It's simple. It's through being recognized by others that each of us can truly feel we have value. It is through recognition from others that one becomes able to wipe away one's feelings of inferiority. One learns to have confidence in oneself. Yes, it's an issue of value. I think you mentioned it last time. That feeling of inferiority is an issue of value judgment. It's because I could never get any recognition from my parents that I've lived a life tainted by feelings of inferiority. Um, so yeah, they just kind of like dive deeper and deeper and deeper um, into just like general philosophy uh, of life. Um, and this guy, so the philosopher is obviously a philosopher. It's kind of like an old dude that's sort of killing it. Um, and then uh, this, the young guy is a guy where his life just fucking sucks. And he uh, kind of has a lot of reasons why his life sucks. Um, and he's basically challenging the philosopher uh, on a lot of his views. So really cool, really cool book to read. I would recommend 10 out of 10 would smash. This book, is one of the favorite books that I've ever read in my entire life. It's called Chaos. It's by James Gleick, The Amazing Science of the Unpredictable. Oh, man, this really fucking sent me on a rabbit hole of a journey. Um, I don't even really know where to start. I don't fully understand a lot of it yet. I was, I was reading this book and basically spending an hour minimum on YouTube every time that I read it, looking up the experiments, looking up people breaking down the experiments, looking up people breaking down, um, the, like the theories and like, it was so much to take on board, but fuck, it was so rewarding. It honestly was one of the most enjoyable reading experiences I've ever had in my entire life. Basically it kind of goes from like, so like chaos theory is now a science it's a thing um but it was only in like the 60s that even like the early building blocks of chaos theory maybe it was a bit earlier than 60s sorry um started to kind of have their foundation laid and this is just a biography essentially of a whole brand brand of science or like a whole lane within science um, and it sort of starts at like the butterfly effect, uh, which everybody's heard of. Um, the fact that like, you know, these little tiny, uh, I guess like causes in the universe can just extrapolate out to have like these massive consequences. I think the, uh, the original scientific paper had the name of, uh, the flap of the wings of a butterfly in Brazil can start a tornado in Texas. I think that was like the name. Um, but basically it sort of started with this guy, Ed, Edward Lorenz, who was a New Mexico meteorologist. Um, and I'll just actually read this a little bit. 
but oh, basically he was just like trying to model weather, weather patterns. Um, and so they were using like these really, oh yeah, it was in sixties. Fuck yeah. I can remember some shit. Um, he was basically just trying to like model these, uh, weather patterns, but back in the day, they obviously didn't really have the best computing software. Um, so anyway, I'll just read this a little bit and then I'll kind of go from there. One day in the winter of 1961, wanting to examine one sequence at greater length, Lorenz took a shortcut. Instead of starting the whole run over, he started midway through. To give the machine its initial conditions, he typed the numbers straight from the earlier printout. He then walked down the hall uh, to get away from the noise and drink a cup of coffee. When he returned an hour later, he saw something unexpected, something that planted a seed for a new science. The run should have exactly duplicated the old. Lorenz had copied the numbers into the machine himself, and the program had not changed. Yet, as he stared at the new printout, Lorenz saw that his weather diverged so rapidly from the pattern of the last run within just a few months. All resemblance, and with, uh, within just a few months, all resemblance had disappeared. He looked at one set of numbers, then back at the other. He might as well have chosen two random weathers uh, out of the hat. His first thought was that one of the vacuum tubes in the computer had gone bad. Suddenly, he realized the, tu- the truth. There had been no malfunction. The problem lay in the numbers that he had typed. In the computer's memory, six de- decimal places were stored, 0.506127. On the printout to save space, just three appeared, 0. 0.506. Lorenz had entered the shorter, rounded-off numbers, assuming that a difference, one part in a thousand, was inconsequential. It was a reasonable assumption. If a weather satellite can read ocean surface temperature to within one part in a thousand, its operators considered themselves lucky. Lorenz Royal McBee was implementing the classical program. It used a purely deterministic system of equations. Given a particular starting point, the weather would, uh, would unfold exactly the same way each time. Given a slightly different starting point, the weather should unfold in a slightly different way. A numerical error was like a small puff of wind. Surely that small puff faded or cancelled each other out um, before they could change important large-scale features of the weather. Yet, in Lorenz's particular system of equations, small errors prove catastrophic. So basically, uh, he was just trying to save time. Um, so he wanted to start the run like a little bit further down but basically what he found what it ended up being called was sensitive dependence on initial conditions so basically if you try to like rerun recreate any kind of um like dynamic system with like i think it's more than three variables if you don't have the exact same starting point the divergence after I think like two phases of iterations will produce a chaotic result, one that cannot be predicted. Um, And this was, I guess, like this mind blowing concept because the kicker is, is that you can never, ever, ever know the initial conditions uh, when it comes to a real world dynamic system. So this makes sense if you ever, ever wondered why the weatherman is so fucking wrong is basically models just go to shit after like a really, really small period of time because you just can never capture the initial conditions correctly, uh, to predict it. 
So, I mean, then this just goes from here. Um, there's all, it's just crazy. There was just all these different scientists all over the world working on these different problems, but coming up with the same kind of like weird deal. Um, and they all slowly over the next like 30 or 40 years kind of started to come together um, and come up with what is now known as chaos theory. Um, this goes into uh, like the, the Mandelbrot set. Um, if anyone's ever seen, like there's a picture there of it. Um, and these, the Mandelbrot set is just from like, well, that's actually the set there. Um but yeah, again, it's just like this tiny, tiny equation and uh, they blow out. Basically, it's like where it blows out to infinity, it, it's black. And then where it doesn't, it's given a color representation. And then uh, it's basically like this infinite fractal. So like this, uh, it's a super, super small set of initial conditions, but it provides just like infinite detail. So you can zoom into the Mandelbrot fractal uh, infinitely. That gets interesting if you've ever done fucking mushrooms and you've seen like the kind of weird fractals. Um, it gets into like talking about, I guess, like oscillations um, and then oscillations is kind of essentially the way that we perceive reality. Like it just gets fucking weird and deep and it's just extreme and extremely cool. So um, you look at these are shapes that... Oh, fuck. Um these shapes that you see here, like this tree fern, again, they're just from like these tiny initial equations. And then it spits out these like random, like completely unpredictable, um, coordinates, but they make these like very predictable shapes. Um, so yeah, anyway, I just found this book to be about as fascinating as a book could ever be. Um, it talks about like turbulence. It talks about the weather. It talks about like mo why uh, it's so hard to model um, like fluid dynamics for heart valves. And yeah, honestly, mind blowing. I, I'm too dumb to even understand what I'm fucking talking about right now. Um, but if you want your mind blown, get a copy of this book. free will this is uh an amazing book uh on one of my favorite topics free will and the uh especially i guess sam harris's argument about free will was let's say it like pretty massive like seismic shift in my way of thinking um and he talks about it there's actually a free will course in the waking up app and I did that course and obviously in the Sam Harris world of the waking up app and meditation, he talks about the, the, there's a particular type of self, which is illusory. Um, and that can be very, very, very hard to get at for a lot of people. Um, it was definitely hard for me to get at for a while. I was kind of doing the meditations and I was doing it and I just, wasn't really seeing it in the way that I knew it could be seen. Um, and then it wasn't until I really put some time in the whole free will 
thing. Uh, did a lot of reading about free will. I listened to every conversation I could about free will. I listened to it from from different angles, from not only Sam's take, but from guys like Joshua Bach, um, different computer scientists. Lisa Feldman Barrett also believes that there's no free will. Um, so there's like, I, I really went deep into this topic um, and it actually kind of gave me like that light bulb moment around the self because I guess for free will to be real, the self would also have to be real. And if you can't find free will, uh, then by default, you can't find the self. Um, and it sounds, I've got a friend of mine, um, that we talk about it all the time and, uh, and yeah, she struggles with the whole free will thing. She can like, well, for a point she could see it, but then she couldn't, I guess, rationalize it because if you, if you, I guess really spend some time like meditating on free will, uh, then it can leave you in a kind of nihilistic state of like, oh, well, I've got no control. Nothing really fucking matters. Like the world's pointless, which it kind of is in a sense, but then it also kind of isn't. Um, and I mean, even for me, like when it really, when like the penny dropped with this whole free will thing and, you know, you spend time looking at how your own mind works and you, it's just very obvious like you don't you don't think a thought before you think it so it's like you just end up in this infinite regression uh and what you do find is that thoughts are just delivered to you in your conscious space of awareness um and there really isn't control over that and i mean there's just a trillion examples of this which is i guess like littered through the book but um Anyway, so it can be like kind of hard to sort of rationalize uh, in a sense. So I think that as soon as, as soon as you kind of like, I guess maybe even get close to being like, fuck it, I think he's right. Um, you just instantly start to push back because again, there's just like this feeling of nihilism that kind of sets in, um, which kind of isn't cool. You don't want to live in that world, but there is ways, there is a lot of ways around it. Um, and maybe it's something that I should, maybe I think maybe just in the meditation episode I'll kind of talk a little bit more about it um but I thought I would read you the conclusion of the book um and it because it kind of sums up a lot of it uh it is generally argued that our experience of free will presents a compelling mystery on the one hand we can't make sense of it in scientific terms on the other we feel that we are the authors of our own thoughts and actions However, I don't think that this mystery is itself a symptom of our confusion. Uh, however, I think that this mystery is itself a symptom of our confusion. It is not that free will is simply an illusion. Our experience is not merely delivering a distorted view of reality. Rather, we are mistaken about our experience. Not only are we not as free as we think we are, we do not feel as free as we think we do. Our sense of our own freedom results from our not paying close enough attention to what it is to be, uh, to what it is like to be us. The moment we pay attention, it is possible to see that free will is nowhere to be found, and our experience is perfectly compatible with this truth. Thoughts and intentions simply arise in the mind. What else could they do? The truth about us is stranger than many may suppose. 
the illusion of it of free will is itself an illusion the problem is not merely that free will makes no sense objectively i.e our thoughts and actions are viewed uh, when our thoughts uh, and actions are viewed from a third person point of view it makes no sense subjectively either it is quite possible to notice through uh, this through introspection in fact i will now perform an experiment for all to see so yeah then he sort of goes on from there but uh yeah i mean it's sounds like this kind of crazy fucking far out hokey concept but when you really just sit down and spend some time uh with your own fucking brain you will see that you are not the author of your thoughts they just come to you it feels like you it looks like you um and it's kind of like i guess in line with this story of who you are and that's i guess when it kind of goes back into the into the self but there's just so many levels that you can play with this and i guess it's to the point now with me where like i i mean i just don't i just don't live in a world where i think i have free will like every thought is kind of delivered to me it's based on the moment before it's based on who I was yesterday all the way back to when I was born I didn't really have a choice in that I didn't really choose my parents well, I didn't choose my parents I didn't choose how I grew up I didn't like all there's so many things that make me me uh that I just like didn't choose and then when it comes to yeah my first person experience I'm not I'm not choosing my thoughts before I think them so it's just you are just being delivered uh everything and you're just you're just essentially like sitting as the witness um it does however like this doesn't alleviate the fact that you know you make choices like yeah we all make choices you go well i'm free to make this choice well again it's just this infinite game of regression like why did you choose that you you don't you only ever do the things that you want to do but you don't really choose your your wants either um if someone says to you you know don't think about a pink elephant it's pretty hard to stop that thought of a pink elephant coming into your mind so there's just if you if you really want to go uh like or read into this if it's interesting um i think it's it's become like extremely beneficial in my life in in a lot of ways um alleviates a a lot of like i guess the mental kind of suffering of like why did i do that i should have done this differently blah 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 um it also makes it a lot easier to be compassionate towards people um it doesn't make sense to hate anybody when you have this framework of thinking um so for i guess people maybe feel like they're really giving something away by not having free will uh whereas in my mind well it's not even like you get a choice i guess it's just like the way do you choose to recognize how things actually are are, i guess presented to you um or do you just kind of want to live in a world where you think that you do have control over things that you don't um but yeah i mean people think that they're losing this big part of what it is to be human um whereas i i think that you actually it's the opposite i think you actually get a lot out of um i guess just being open and like just seeing this on a daily basis so anyway that's a whole fucking kettle of fish it's probably the thing it's probably the thing that i have thought uh the most about in the last like few years um that's books in this pile for this year but i've read it a bunch of times and i've spent 
like a lot of time thinking about uh free will and i guess even just in, in my own life just like seeing the lack there of as well um so anyway like i said whole fucking whole thing whole kettle of fish next we have the four agreements this was a book recommended to me by joe rogan uh don miguel ruiz uh it's a uh taltic book of wisdom i really enjoyed it very basic tenets i'll just go through this read out the uh the four agreements spoiler alert be impeccable with your word applies to me i fucking say a lot of words don't take anything personally um do you have a self to take anything personally don't make assumptions and always do your best. So I'm just going to go through, briefly read uh, some of these, just like I guess the first chapter from, uh, first paragraph from each. The first agreement is the most important one and also the most difficult one to honor. It is so important that with just this first agreement, you will be able to transcend the level of existence uh, to the level of existence I call heaven on earth. This is an old book, by the way. The first agreement is to be impeccable with your word. It sounds very simple, but it is very, very powerful. Why your word? Your word is the power that you have to create. Your word is the gift that comes directly from God. Skip the God part. Um, Through the word, you express your creative power. It is through the word that you manifest everything, regardless of what language you speak, your intent uh, manifest through the word. Uh, so yeah, anyway, very simple. But when you think about it, you're like, hmm, fuck, that actually makes sense. Your word, whether it's like the way that you talk to yourself in your mind, uh, or the things that you say in the real world, quote unquote, um, they are the power that you have to like kind of shape like reality, not only your own, but everybody else's. Um, so yeah, and once you start thinking about that, I'm kind of like, I'll be honest, I'm kind of bad for being like, yeah, I'll do this, I'll do this, and I just fucking don't do it. I have every, like, good intention, but the reality is, is that if I, like, actually thought about it before I said it, I'd probably go like, you have no fucking time to do this, dude. Like, you can't, you can't say that you're going to do something that you just literally have no time to do, even if you do have, like, all the right intentions at heart. So, yeah, become, uh, become a pretty big tenant for me that I just, like, really tried to keep in my mind. Um, this one as well, don't take anything personally, whatever happens around you, don't take it personally. Using an earlier example, if you see, uh, if I see you on the street and I say, Hey, you are so stupid without knowing you, it's not about you. It's about me. If you take it personally, then perhaps you believe you are stupid. Maybe you think to yourself, how does he know? Is he clairvoyant or can everybody see how stupid I am? You take it personally because you agree with whatever was said. As soon as you agree, the poison goes through you and you are trapped in a dream of hell. What causes you to be trapped is what we call personal importance. Personal importance or, to- or taking things personally is the maximum expression of selfishness because we make the assumption that everything is about me. Boom! Fucking bang. I don't even need to go into that one. Stop making shit about yourself, man. Do you even have a self to make shit about yourself, man? Um, don't make assumptions. Uh, the third agreement is don't make assumptions. We have the tendency to make assumptions about everything. The problem with making assumptions is that we believe they are the truth. 
we could swear they're real. We make assumptions about what others are doing or thinking. We take it personally. Then we blame them and react by sending emotional poison with our word. That's why whenever we make assumptions, we are asking for problems. We make an assumption, we misunderstand, we, we take it personally, and we end up creating a whole big drama for nothing. I did this yesterday. I, uh, I was sitting down with Maddie having ramen, and then I saw a chick that I kind of had a thing with a while ago, and it didn't really end on the best terms, and like it's just weird anytime I fucking see her, it's a weird vibe, and I, I thought I saw her yesterday. I assumed I saw her yesterday, because I saw the back of her. I'm like, I know that ass, I know that hair that's fucking such and such and then i spent like i was like she's gonna have to walk by this way again and then uh she was like walking in the woolies and then i spent like 10 minutes just kind of it was like in my head i'd made this assumption and then the chick walked out from woolies i was like fuck it's not even her so anyway make assumptions and uh my dad always used to say uh to assume makes an ass out of you and me so fucking keep that keep that in your back pocket um There's one more agreement, but it's the one that allows the other three to become deeply ingrained habits. The fourth agreement is about the action of the first three. Always do your best. Under any circumstance, always do your best. No more, no less. But keep in mind that your best is never going to be the same from one moment to the next. Everything is alive and changing all the time, so your best will will... Sometimes be high quality and other times it will not be as good. When you wake up refreshed, blah, 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 blah. I actually said uh, when I did Cooper Chapman's podcast the other day, uh, Good Humans Factory, he asked me um, what, what it means to be a good human. Um, and my answer actually pretty much come from this book. It was something I've been thinking about quite a lot. Uh, and it's basically do your best and be cool with yourself when your best isn't good enough because sometimes your best is just bang on the money and other times your best is not going to be good enough um but if you did your best when it's not good enough you're going to be able to sit back and be like fuck oh well i did my best i tried and uh i'll just endeavor to do better next time um so yeah anyway i love that book it's simple if you got this it'd probably take you like a few hours to read if you really had a crack at it so great book there to get into This book, damn, skin in the game. I loved this book. It took me a while to read. Uh, I read every word of it. It's probably a book that you could, I don't really ever advertise or like promote skim reading, but there's probably some bits that you could kind of breeze through if you really wanted to, but I really got into this. Uh, there's a there's a podcast that I recommend everybody read, uh, and it is uh, by Naval Ravikant. And it is called How to Get Rich, but it's kind of a clickbaity title. It's more, he, he even says it should be called How to Get Wealthy, but it just won't sound as good. Um, and then he design, he defines wealth as like money just being one aspect of that. It's kind of just like this overall uh, general being a wealthy person in all aspects of your life. Um, but anyway, Nassim, uh Naval is a guy that I respect deeply. Uh, and I just, he's kind of like a Sam Harris type figure. Um, the stuff that he says is fucking brilliant and he is a brilliant, brilliant thinker. And he basically, I listened to a YouTube clip of him saying, 
Stop reading whatever you're reading. Read Skin in the Game and then read all of Nassim Taleb's uh, other works. He's It's a five-part series called Incerto. Uh, and I did. I stopped reading what I was reading. I finished reading what I was reading. And then I bought the Incerto series. I read Skin in the Game first. The Hidden Asymmetries in Daily Life. Asymmetry is just a concept within itself that is worth really understanding. Uh, I actually was quite proud of myself the other day. I used it in conversation. I could see, what was it we talking about? I was like, hmm, yeah, there is an asymmetry there, isn't there? And I was like pretty pumped because it's, you know, like highbrow fucking reading. I read all that shit. Um, but yeah, just like even the concept of seeing like certain asymmetry. So basically the, uh, there's, uh, how would, where should I start with this? Basically like a pilot, right? A pilot has skin in the game. There's no asymmetry between like his, him, uh, I guess like failing and succeeding. Like a pilot has skin in the game because he's sitting in the chair and if something goes wrong if he doesn't perform at his job then he basically will wear the brunt of the consequences as much as all of the passengers that are on his plane conversely if you look at say a wall street banker that basically causes the uh the stock market like all of the bankers collectively that cause the stock market to crash essentially um they had no skin in the game. So they were like basically protected from the crash. So they reaped all the benefits and then it was the citizens of America that got ripped off by the banks. They wore all of the downside. So you get, uh, you basically get no share in the downside and all of the upside. So that would be, uh, I guess like no skin in the game. And then that's like the kind of asymmetry that you don't want to be a part of. Um, so, this book really dives deep into that concept and there's so much brilliant shit in this book. He's a crazy motherfucker, this Nassim Taleb. Like, you can see some interviews and stuff. I don't know that I would be, like, I would enjoy being around him, but he's a fucking super smart dude. There's some cool stuff here. Um, I don't know how much of this I want to read, to be honest. It's all pretty full on. Um, but yeah, I mean, this, this is a, if you're into this shit, this is a brilliant book. Um, freedom is never free in the infamous tale by Ahikwa, uh, later picked up by Aesop. The dog boasts to the wolf, all of the contraptions of comfort and luxury he has almost prompting the wolf to enlist until the wolf asks the dog about his collar and is terrified when he understands its use. Of all your meals, I want nothing. He ran away and is still running. The question is, what would you like to be, a dog or a wolf? The original Aramic version had a wild ass instead of a wolf showing off his freedom, uh, but then the wild ass ends up eaten by the lion. Freedom entails risk. Real skin in the game. Freedom is never free. Uh, so he talks about uh, that a bit. Um there's another bit. This is kind of cool. Uh, I've always sort of thought, I think it's cool when a book kind of, uh, how would you say it? I guess like really uh, defines or like, I guess puts into words something that you've kind of always got in your mind. 
Uh, he talks a lot about, he talks a bit about cursing, he uses an example of swearing. Um, and I always just kind of, I always was like, no, nah, fuck it. I'll swear. That's my shit. I'll do what I want. Um, and he like sums it up quite eloquently in this book. And then there's another part of it as well, I guess that I'll go on to. Um, I'll just read this bit. When I switched firms away from the proto company, man, I was explicitly told that my employment would terminate the minute I ceased to meet the PL target. I had my back to the wall, but I took the gamble, which forced me to engage in arbitrage, low risk transactions with small downsides that were possible at the time because of the sophistication of operations in the financial uh, because the sophistication of operations uh, operators in the financial market was very low. I recall being asked why I didn't wear a tie, which at, the, which at that point in time was the equivalent of walking down Fifth Avenue naked. One part arrogance, one part aesthetics, one part convenience was my usual answer. If you were profitable, you could give managers all the crap you wanted and they ate it because they needed you and were afraid of losing their own job. Risk takers can be socially unpredictable people. Freedom is always associated with risk-taking, whether it leads to it or comes from it. You take risks, you feel part of history, and the risk-takers take risks because it's in their nature to be wild animals. Note the, the linguistic dimension, and why, in addition to sartorial consideration, traders need to be kept away from the rest of the non-free, non-risk-taking people. In my day, nobody cursed in public except for gang members and those who wanted to signal that they were not slaves. Traders curse like sailors, and I have kept the habit of strategic foul language used only outside of my writings and family life. Those who use foul language on social networks, such as Twitter, are sending an expensive signal that they are free and, ironically, competent. You don't signal competence if you don't take risks for it. There are a few such low-risk strategies. So cursing today is a status symbol, just as oligarchs in Moscow wear blue jeans as special events to signify their power. Even in banks, traders were shown to customers. Uh, even in banks, traders were shown to customers on tours of the firm as if they were animals in a zoo. At the sight of a trader cursing on the phone while in a shouting match with a broker was just part of the scenery. So while cursing and bad language can be a sign of dog-like status and total ignorance. Uh, the canonile which etymologically relates uh, these people to dogs. Ironically, the highest status, that of a free man, is usually indicated by voluntary adopting the mores of the lowest class. I thought that was uh, quite interesting because, yeah, for me, I, I just, I swear because I can. And I swear when I do podcasts and shit because... A, it's how I talk, and B, there's just really no one that can tell me that I can't do it. And it, I guess it is signaling. It is nice to let people know um, that you're free and that you can do what you want to do. Um, and I guess that's that. Uh, and there's also a chapter that kind of goes with this as well. Um, uh, where is this? He talks about... There's so much stuff in here. Um, surgeons should not look like surgeons. Say you had between your uh, your choice between two surgeons of similar rank in the same department in some hospital. 
The first is highly refined, refined in appearance. He wears silver rim glasses, has a thin, bald, delicate hands, measured speech, and elegant gestures. His hair is silver and well-combed. He is the person you would put in a movie if you needed to impersonate a surgeon. His office is prominently uh, his office prominently boasts Ivy League diplomas from both his undergraduate and medical schools. The second one looks like a butcher. He is overweight with large hands, uncouth speech, and an unkept experience, uh, appearance. His shirt is dangling from the back. No known tailor on the east coast of the US is capable of making his shirt button at the neck. He speaks unapologetically with a strong New York accent, and if he wasn't aware of it, uh, as if he wasn't aware of it. He even has a gold tooth showing when he opens his mouth. The absence of diplomas on the wall hints at the lack of pride in his education. He perhaps went to some local college. In a movie, you would expect him to impersonate a retired bodyguard for a junior congressman or a third-generation cook in a New Jersey cafeteria. Now, if I had to pick, I would overcome my sucker proneness and take the butcher any minute. Even more, I would seek the butcher as a third option if my choice was between two doctors who look like doctors. Why? Simply the one who doesn't look the part, conditional uh, conditional on having made successful careers in his profession, had to have uh, had to have much to overcome in terms of perception. And if we are lucky enough to have people who don't uh, who do not look the part, it is thanks to the presence of some skin in the game, the contact with reality that filters out the incompetence as reality is blind to looks. Fucking boom. I just agree with, with with this so fucking much. And it's why I won't get a haircut. And it's why I just don't give a fuck how jagged and scraggly my beard looks. Because ultimately, I just don't really give a fuck. And I just think it's cool uh, to, again, I, I guess it kind of comes back to that same thing with the swearing. It's like, I don't have anyone that's telling me what to do. And everything that I've got and everything that I've built is... I like regardless of how things should get done or how you should look or you should dress like this or if you want to be taken seriously this is what you should do so there is so much of that fucking bullshit in society and to me I've always just tried to look and be different just on that fact is like hey I'm just gonna build my shit exactly how I want it and I want it to be built on merit of doing a good job not looking the part, not saying the right fucking thing, not not swearing, not doing any of that. I just want to do a good job the way that I want to be doing it, uh, the way that I want to do it. And if people like it, they like it. And if people don't, they don't. And uh, it was cool that it was, I guess, uh, written in that way. It was something I could really kind of relate to. So, Third book, uh, third book, fuck, see, no free will there, um, didn't know I was going to say that before I said it, if I did, probably would have not said it, uh, deep work, rules for a focused success in a distracted world, I am insanely distracted at all fucking times, uh, we all are, and there's just like this bombardment of shit coming at us left and right, uh, all day, every single day, I mean, I've had five phone calls while I've tried to do this podcast, um, and I've had like a bunch of other random shit on my mind 
Uh, it's really, really, really hard to get stuff done. In this book, uh, Cal Newport is, uh, I guess, making the argument for deep and undistracted work. When I read this book, I tried to do it. It definitely helped with productivity in a way, but deep work is also really fucking hard to do. Um, but I think I took some stuff from this. I, I took a really good look at distraction itself and like how distracted that I was and became really cognizant of it. Um, I've henceforth, uh, deleted social media off my phone that stays on a phone that's at home. Um, and I don't bring it to work. Uh, I also, once I read this book, I also just gave Ronan all the logins to all the Instagram and shit. And I was like, I think you need to be doing all the posting, bro. Um, cause yeah, it was just too, too distracting. So really good book. If you're into productivity, uh, this is a really cool book to read. He's also a professor at MIT. Super fucking smart. I love this book, uh, Drug Use for Grown Ups. I really wish my parents would read this book. Um, anyone should read this book, really, because drugs are an important issue, I personally believe. Uh, yes, you can get you get through your life without using drugs, um, but you can also get through your life with using drugs. And I think that it should be kind of a personal choice uh, as long as you're not fucking with anybody else uh dr carl hart is a black man which is quite important for the story um and i think it's quite an important issue when it like race and drugs are a very fucking important issue and if you are in the camp of like i guess not thinking that the conversation around drugs matters um i would like to say that there's just a lot of black people in jail for no fucking well not for no reason but a lot of black people that have been put in jail uh, for drugs and for crimes that a lot of white people do every single day that just goes completely unprosecuted, completely unnoticed. They've even written the laws differently, um, you know, like crack cocaine versus cocaine uh, incurs a insane penalty uh, over cocaine. Cocaine is consumed by predominantly white people. Crack is presumed... Uh, consumed by predominantly black people so there is literally a systemic difference between the way that people are incarcerated um also the u.s government just like flooded black communities with crack um so anyway there's like there's a it's a whole thing like i really think that like the drug thing is something that a lot of people should put some focus into um just for like general equality. Um, and you know, there's, there's some, I mean, drugs are fucking super helpful for me. I'm not, I don't recreationally really use drugs like every now and again, if it's around and it's like the right kind of vibe, I will. Um, mainly I'll use, uh, like cannabis and then I love doing mushrooms. Mushrooms are a really great thing to do from time to time. Um, but I just think that there's like an important, uh, conversation around drugs, around, I guess, like equality when it comes to that. And this is a really, really brilliant book on it. Um, Carl Hart also has two really great podcasts with uh, Rogan. That's how I first found out about him. Um, so if you want to check those out, uh, I've got some stuff here highlighted. Um, also, this is like, I'll read this little um, paragraph here. 
I am an unapologetic drug user. I take drugs as a part of my pursuit of happiness and they work. I am a happier and better person because of them. I am also a scientist and a professor of psychology specializing in neuroscience at Columbia University, known for my work on drug abuse and addiction. It has taken me more than two decades to come out of the closet about my personal drug use. Simply put, I've been a coward. Um, so yeah, he kind of goes on to illustrate like why it's important to talk about drugs if you're a person that does see benefits from it. Um, and I think that I've kind of always just adopted this stance from myself. It's like, hey, I do this, this, and this. I'm a pretty fucking successful person. I put a pretty massive effort into being a good person and then being better and better and better and better. Um, I've tried to be really good to the people around me. I try and be good to my community. This isn't a fucking thing that's holding me back. If anything, it's like kind of helping me out. Uh, it's also important to notice, uh, to note as well. Um, oh, this is, this is cool. I'll read this a little bit quickly. Um, of the three, I'm inspired most by the powerful concepts articulated in the Declaration of Independence. Even though it is not law, the Declaration is the foundation upon which American democracy was built. This document guarantees each citizen three birthrights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That can't be taken away. It proclaims each person's right to live as they see fit, as long as they do not interfere with others' ability to do the same. And it declares that governments are created to secure these rights, not restrict them. So that's kind of cool. Um, I actually brought that up with Malcolm Roberts when we did the Malcolm Roberts po uh, podcast. Um, but yeah, it's kind of cool as well to note that Carl Hart had a kind of similar upbringing uh, in a sense with me. Like, I think I've kind of spoken about it before. Um, but... Uh, I had a really like gnarly relationship with drugs when I was a kid. I didn't do any form of drugs at all until I was, I think like 24, um, maybe, maybe 25. Um, because I just grew up in like a really rough area and drugs were like a fucking problem. Like I just saw no positivity coming from it. And I thought that my whole life I would have never done drugs. Uh, and it wasn't until I started meeting some people that just like killed it at their life um, and drugs was kind of like an important part of their, like their happiness, um, that I kind of changed my mentality around it. And Carl Hart was the same, uh, a black man where he had cousins and uncles that were in jail for crack. Um, and then he has come around to have his mind completely changed. Um, there's also a really, really interesting chapter at the end of the book where he talks about purposely giving himself a heroin addiction and then overcoming that addiction um so yeah this is a really really cool book if you do drugs and your parents fucking hate you for it buy them this book and just like slip it in there um but yeah it's a really important conversation i think to be have just for some of the social implications um around it so i would recommend it i really enjoyed it beyond entrepreneurship 2.0 turning your business into an enduring company. I don't really read a lot of business books. Um, don't really see myself as a businessman. I guess I'm starting to get in that lane more and more these days. Uh, but this was recommended to Sam 
from Jake at MX Store, and I was like, hmm, Jake's a fucking G, I might read this book, uh, really cool, I get, I don't really need to go too far into it, I guess, um, if you like business, this is just a great business book to read, there is one thing that I took from this, so this is, like, I guess, funny about, uh, just like, I don't know, just like, this is why you should read, essentially, right, you just don't know the influence that something's gonna have, the US studio, happened because of this book. I read this book and it talked about, uh, it's called a bag, a big, hairy, audacious goal. Um, and it's talked about like every business should have this bag that they're working towards. Um, and I remember just, I literally remember sitting in my fucking reading chair in my room. It was like winter, wintry sort of morning. And I was reading this chapter and I was like, huh, I don't really have that right now. Everything was just kind of like ticking along. And then I got a DM from Ryan Hughes about the podcast. And then it was basically him saying like, he doesn't have Wi-Fi. He'd have to go somewhere else to do the podcast. And the US studio was literally born out of reading that chapter around a bag. Uh, And it's like, I don't know, does that happen without it? And it also kind of pertains to the conversation about, you know, free will. It's like, I almost did not have any free will, uh, in the, the U S studio taking place. Like it just happened. I read this book, this book got mixed with a DM from Ryan Hughes, which then got fucking mixed with my mind. And then bang, we've got a fucking U S studio now. And then we got a Europe studio now. And it's like, yeah. So that's kind of like why you read because you're stuck in this fucking box of your brain and you are anchored down to your experiences and your own fucking DNA. And then you take in somebody else's expertise, somebody else's knowledge, somebody else's point of view. And it then like manifests through you in, uh, in like a real thing in the way that the US studio did. So love this book, delivered me the US studio, delivered you guys some great content. If you have a business, read it, maybe. Mastery of Love, uh, again, this is by Don Miguel Ruiz, uh, and really cool, um, just like relationships, kind of old school, I took some pretty cool stuff out of it, I think this, I think this book pretty much is just in line with how I think about a relationship should be, uh, a lot of stuff when it comes to, like, one of the things that fucking sucks for me in a relationship is like when someone puts their happiness on you, and it's like, it's on, I, things that I do, uh, I guess, responsible for someone's happiness or lack thereof. Uh, and I'm like, I just, I'm just not really with that shit. Um, I'm not really with like the whole, like two lives becoming one. I'm more of like a, I got my life, you got your life. We do our lives together. And then two heads are better than one. Our lives get better that's kind of like a theme through this book. So yeah, there's a four box set that you can get, um, of this, the four agreements. And then the other two I haven't read yet. Getting close, getting close. Like I said, uh, I read the, uh, I read mutiny on the bounty. I read the prologue, which talked about the murder of captain cook. And I was like, Oh fuck. I really need to read some more shit on Captain Cook. So then I bought this book. It was fucking expensive. Um, but I loved, uh, well, I'm about 
two thirds of the way through it. Um, it's going to be one. I just had to put it down. Like it was just, it was a lot of maritime history for a point there. Um, I'm going to keep reading it. I absolutely loved reading this book. Captain Cook, pardon me. Captain Cook has probably got a pretty bad rap here in Australia. Um, as like the dude that came and kind of like fuck shit up. But again, I think that if you really go back and read through history and you get this context of like the fact that they, that all of Europe didn't even know that Australia was a thing. It was called Lost Terra Australis, the, uh, the lost Southern land. And that basically like the Europeans were exploring the Southern hemisphere of Australia because they genuinely thought that there must be a landmass in the southern hemisphere that was about the size of Europe because if there wasn't the earth wouldn't spin it would just like stay on the bottom because Europe was heavy <laughs> so that's literally how Australia got discovered um so basically someone was going to find Australia they were all looking for it the Dutch found it first didn't really find it in the way that Captain Cook did um then the way that Captain Cook discovered uh all of the the Pacific Islands, the way he was basically like the Steve Jobs of writing maps. So yeah, there's so much from this book that I took away, and I will continue to read it. I'll continue to learn. It's this is like a prized possession. I don't maybe it's just something about being from Cairns too, and like there was always this huge Captain Cook statue. But I mean, fuck, Captain Cook was like a racial slur that the Aboriginal kids used to say to us. They used to call us Captain Cook cunts. So it's like, I don't know, there's something about Captain Cook for me that I really wanted to just like learn a lot more about. Um, But from what I can tell so far by reading two-thirds of his biography, what a fucking brilliant dude. Um, Yes, crazy. If you're into history, if you're into historical figures and Australiana, um... The Life of Captain James Cook by J.C. Beaglehole is about as fucking good as it gets, to be honest. And then finally, this was the last, this was in no particular order, but actually this was the last book that I read in 2021. Uh, And it's the last book I'll talk about now. Hicks and Gracie, Breathe. The Gracies are the famous uh, founding jiu-jitsu family. Jiu-jitsu basically... Uh, came to Brazil from Japan. Uh, it was taught to Helio Gracie, um, who was like the guy at the peak of the pyramid. Um, and then Hickson is uh, one of his grandsons. I should know that. Um, but basically, this was uh, Hickson's own account of his life and growing up through jiu-jitsu. He is... Uh, commonly referred to as like he's the best of all the Gracies he fought uh, he never fought in the UFC um, he fought in pride in Japan um, and yeah he was like the champion of the family so if you've ever thought about uh, like jiu-jitsu or like been curious about it it's not it's I guess not just about jiu-jitsu it's just like this crazy crazy story um, of a martial art being born in Brazil and then it was like a brutal, brutal, um, I guess, like coming of age for it in Brazil. Valley Tudo was like this kind of early mixed martial arts. And then this family just set out to prove 
that they had the greatest martial art. They used to just like walk into gyms and like fuck people up to earn respect. And it was like a heavy story. And then when the UFC happened, it just exploded all over uh, the world. Like people wanted to learn jujitsu and then the brothers and the cousins and the uncles, they all just kind of spread out around the world to start teaching Gracie jujitsu. And yeah, it's a gnarly, gnarly story. And Hicks and Gracie is a gnarly, gnarly human. So that's it. That's 2021 in books. That's 6,570 pages of reading. Uh, it is cool when you can, I guess, look back and see everything that you read in a year. Um, I love doing this podcast. I appreciate you guys for listening. I hope that you got some good recommendations potentially out of it um sorry my reading out loud sucks i fucking probably need to practice that um if you got any questions dm me um i'm just trying to think if there's anything else i should really go through here yeah there's so much if you got any questions just send me a message um this year has been a shocking start i didn't read at all when i was in bali um, and the first book that I read was for this year was called Master and Margarita. Um, and it's a Russian classic and it was extremely hard to read because it is got a lot of Russian names and places and characters to remember. And they all fucking sound the same if I'm honest. Um, but that was brilliant. One of the best books I've ever read. And if you listen to last year's book review, um, you'll, or the year before, I guess, 2020, um, you'll remember me reading the a gentleman in moscow so my some of my two favorite novels of all time have both both been based in moscow so i'll uh, i'll have to try and pump through a few more at some point this year um but yeah like i said hit me up if you got any questions about reading book recommendations doesn't have to be from this lot um i will try and like link or write all of them in the description um below but yeah i think that's it I think we did it. I've been putting this off for ages because, yeah, what? It's just like a couple of hours. All right. Cool. Thanks very much. Fucking read some books.